This is an ABC podcast. If a prisoner has a tax question, what can they do? Welcome to the Australian Taxation Office Individual Information Line. They have to use a general phone line, which is available to every Australian, and they've got 10 minutes on the phone. So by the time you get through to the tax office within 10 minutes, you've stated your proof of identity, they've got you going, and then all of a sudden the phone cuts off. Sounds frustrating. Shortly on The Law Report, you'll hear about an innovative program in WA helping prisoners lodge their tax returns. Hi, Damien Carrick here. First, the High Court has just overturned the murder convictions of four men who had been found guilty of beating a man to death in a marijuana grow house. Nobody knows which of the four men actually carried out this attack, but because they had all gone to the house with the intention to rob the victim's marijuana crop, prosecutors at trial had successfully argued that they were all responsible for his death. University of New South Wales lecturer Matthew Nelson is a former prosecutor. Matthew Nelson, what is a marijuana grow house? It's a term that describes a premises that um, is used to grow, cultivate or manufacture drugs, including cannabis in this case and other prohibited plants or drugs. Um, Interestingly, one of the judges in in the lower courts in this case referred to these houses as being common knowledge in Australian society that these houses would likely be guarded and it might be necessary to use violence to um, overcome the person guarding the premises. So, Whilst that nothing really turned on that in the in the appeal, um, it seems to be a term that um, some judges consider to be common knowledge, but uh, really just refers to a house that's um, used to to grow or manufacture drugs. These houses are they're often ordinary suburban houses with, with uh, you know very sophisticated hydroponic irrigation systems and and lit with artificial lighting, and they're often staffed, I suppose is the word, by somebody called a crop sitter, and they're tasked with maintaining this indoor marijuana crop. That's correct, yes. And and in this case, it was in the northern suburbs of Adelaide and and was a residential street, a quiet residential street in which um, this grow house was located. And you're absolutely right. In fact, the deceased or the victim in this case was um, someone who was a, a person monitor, guarding at least, that was the, the prosecution evidence guarding this uh, premises and, and tending uh, with others to, to manufacture and cultivation of um, the cannabis there. And the, the deceased, the victim, his name is Urim Jabri. Um, he, he's an Albanian national, I think a man who was in his 40s when he died back in 2018. How did he die? The evidence at least indicated that he was sort of brutally beaten by at least one or possibly more of this group of uh, five men. Ultimately, four were before the High Court. There was a separate trial in respect of the fifth. And uh, a number of weapons were used. The sort of specific nature of those weapons is a bit unclear. It's sort of captured on um, CCTV footage, uh, but there was sort of something resembling a, a stick, and it took at least on the prosecution evidence, around half an hour or so uh, before he, he died. But the medical evidence certainly indicates that uh, it was a result of 
to that blunt force trauma. A blunt blunt force trauma to the head. Indeed, the, the evidence was that uh, Mr Jabri uh, staggered to a, a makeshift bed in the house where he died and his body wasn't discovered until some three days after the attack. Now, these four men who, whose convictions have just been overturned by the High Court, uh, Ben Mitchell, Alfred Rigney, Matt uh, Tinhupen and Aaron Carver, what was the evidence against them? What linked them to this home invasion or, or, or you know, this um, raid on the, the cannabis grow house? The prosecution case was sort of entirely circumstantial. So it was based on pieces of evidence that were sort of brought together to suggest that the sort of only reasonable inference is that it was these four as well as another individual uh, that were responsible for this. And the case was described in, um, at least in some of the judgments in the High Court as a strong circumstantial case, but they could you know, use CCT evidence, which appeared to be very useful to the prosecution case. So, for example, there was some CCTV footage which recorded two cars driving near the, the Grow House in the time around the time time of death was recorded, um, and those cars parked in the same back street. Now, those two cars matched the description of cars that were either purchased or owned by and some of the co-accused. There was also data from a nearby a telephone tower which um, indicated that the phones of a number of the co-accused were in fact in the area and CCTV footage also showed five individuals walking towards the, the grow house um, and apparently could be seen in the footage that um, one of them was carrying a, an object that uh, as we discussed before was sort of variously described but in something resembling a stick or a bat. There was also footage in that um, CCTV uh, that captured two Individuals in that group are smoking and then a later search in that area found a cigarette butt with a strong probability match with one of the co-accused. And there was also some evidence of the one of the co-accused DNA in and around the house as well on as well as on, on implements. Um, and also in the deceased car, which um, sort of the prosecution case was that the cannabis that was taken from the house was put into the victim's car and, and driven some distance away. There were also some items that were found in the co-accused houses that um, matched items that uh, were also found in the the grow house. So there's there's all this quite strong circumstantial evidence to show that these men were at the house and we have a dead body, but nobody can actually link or establish uh, which person or persons were involved in, in the bashing of the deceased. So it's complicated, but if you can just distill it down for us, what did the prosecution successfully argue at trial to secure four four murder convictions? The way in which prosecutors can prove cases like this where it's you wouldn't necessarily be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt or attribute the act causing someone's death to a particular member of a group of people who embark upon uh, a criminal enterprise, for example, use this doctrine of uh, what's known as joint criminal enterprise or common purpose. It's a type of sort of complicity uh, where liability for acts of another or crimes of another are attributed to people in a particular group. So the Crown in this case had to rely on the fact that you have this joint criminal enterprise that the five individuals, including the four appellants um, in the High Court, embarked upon. And that was a criminal enterprise because they were, the sort of offence that they relied on in that respect was a, a break and enter, 
with the intention of stealing, and that is stealing the cannabis um, from the grow house. And so you can extend liability for acts done in the course of that criminal enterprise, um, including if someone dies as a result of it, under these joint criminal enterprise doctrines or extended joint criminal enterprise doctrine. So, so the idea being that, okay, you had this joint plan to commit a crime and while you might not have planned to commit murder, look, it was kind of foreseeable that that would be an obvious risk or consequence of you carrying out the crime. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where extended joint criminal enterprise comes in, which is a quite a controversial extension of a normal joint criminal enterprise, which would simply be that crimes that are committed in the course or acts that are committed in the course of committing that offence that they agreed to are attributed or the acts are attributed to members of the, the enterprise. With extended joint criminal enterprise, as you say, it envisages a scenario where you've agreed with another person to commit a crime and in the course of committing that crime, the other person commit some other crime that you did not agree to be committed, but you could be held liable for uh, that crime if uh, you foresaw the possibility that your co-accused would commit that crime, uh, as well as have all the sort of necessary states of mind necessary to, to prove that crime. So... The prosecution in this case, together with some legislation which is specific to to South Australia, put this to the jury and that resulted in a successful conviction of of these four men. That's correct. So they put the case sort of in two pathways to murder. One was a common law murder charge using extended joint criminal enterprise and then the other pathway uh, to murder was using what's known as constructive murder, which is a it's a common law doctrine, but it's also found in, it's now sort of legislated in many states and territories, including South Australia. So tried to use that pathway to con, uh, murder convictions using constructive murder with the extended joint criminal enterprise doctrine. And so ultimately they all four were convicted, but the jury, as is very often the case, don't need to explain which pathway they chose, um, but they ultimately convicted each co-accused of murder, so they're obviously satisfied at least of one one of those pathways. And the High Court just said, I'm sorry, we're overturning these convictions because we have real concerns about th- those pathways. So, so in a nutshell, what, what did the High Court say? The High Court had to examine both the directions given by uh, the trial judge um, on extended joint criminal enterprise, which a number of the judgments found were uh, problematic, but also had to grapple with whether or not you could even use uh, constructive murder and that extended uh, joint criminal enterprise together. And they ultimately concluded that you couldn't, but a lot did turn on the wording of the South Australian provision. Um, so they essentially found that the requirement uh, to hold someone liable for constructive murder using extended joint criminal enterprise principles is that you needed to have intended that the accomplice who committed the act that caused the death, um, which was an act, uh, you know, a violent act, that was in fact intended. And that meant uh, that it required something much higher than what extended joint criminal enterprise at common law requires, which is simply foresight of the possibility. And so, 
the judgments concluded that the, the two principles or the two extended joint criminal enterprise and constructive murder just simply couldn't sit side by side, at least in South Australia. So there's a difference between one requires intention and the other one requires foreseeability and they can't, can't, really can't kind of sit together. Yeah, the idea is that if, if you're going to hold someone liable for constructive murder through principles of extended joint criminal enterprise, because of the wording of the South Australian provision, which requires the accused to have intended an act of violence, requiring something less, uh, as you say, which is foresight of the possibility or foreseeing the possibility that they would commit uh, the crime just didn't marry up. And so it simply wasn't available. Um, and that's certainly how they, they resolve that question. So what happens now? That, that these four men face a retrial? Yeah, that's correct. And the prosecution will obviously grapple with how they will now run their case. Um, obviously, it's quite a clear indication from the court that the High Court that uh, they can't run constructive murder, at least the statutory version of it in South Australia, next to extended joint criminal enterprise. The other pathway that they articulated at trial could still be open to them. So that might be a reason why they would continue the, the prosecution or, or proceed with a retrial. And what's that one pathway? That's where it's using extended joint criminal enterprise, but um, running it on the basis of a common law murder. Uh, so one where they can prove that they foresaw the possibility that one of their number would intentionally inflict a fatal uh, uh, attack on the, the victim. And that, again, is a circumstantial case, but a lot of these extended joint criminal enterprise cases where you have to draw inferences as to what was in the mind of the accused is based on you know the things that were taken to the scene of the crime. So if you're carrying weapons, you can it's perhaps more easy to infer that someone would go there with an intention to inflict you know grievous bodily harm or, or even inflict um, death on someone who might be present. Which is what the CCTV evidence might suggest, the prosecution would argue. University of New South Wales academic and former prosecutor Matthew Nelson, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks very much, Damien. Most of us find completing our tax return confusing and time-consuming, but some groups face bigger obstacles than most. So back in 2018, Curtin University in WA pioneered the concept of a tax clinic, a free service where business and law students under professional supervision help vulnerable people with their tax issues. It was a huge success and there are now 16 similar clinics all across the country. The Curtin Tax Clinic continues to do groundbreaking outreach work. It now visits 12 prisons all across WA. Its founder and director is Annette Morgan. Annette Morgan, you say without help, it's virtually impossible for prisoners to complete a tax return. Why? They don't have the ability to call the tax office like we do. So if, if they do wish to call the tax office, they have to um, use a general phone line, which is available to every Australian, and they've got 10 minutes on the phone. So by the time you get through to the tax office within 10 minutes, you've stated your proof of identity, they've got you going, and then all of a sudden the phone cuts off because in prison, 10 minutes, bang, the phone's gone. So then they have to start the process of calling again. They get a different person. 
they think go through the same process. So they often get very frustrated with that system and end up giving up trying to comply with their tax affairs. Presumably they don't have access to the internet as well. They don't have access to the internet. So, you know, it's very commonplace for, for everybody else to do their tax through MyGov if they're, they're taking care of it themselves, MyGov, MyTax, where an incarcerated person doesn't have the ability to do that. So they're looking to fill in paper forms. And we no longer have the, the old-fashioned tax pack. So any tax returns that need to be completed are actually quite an in-depth printed uh, tax return such as the I-4. And, you know, I know for myself, a lot of information is not very, you know, you've, you're not having it pre-filled either. So you've got to have that information at hand. You might not also have the details or your documents to be able to complete your tax return. So they really are cut off from being able to engage with the tax system. Annette Morgan, tell me about some of your clients and, and how you've been able to help them. I believe there's one bloke called Dennis. Tell me about him. Yeah, so Dennis was incarcerated for a few years and he was at a prison farm and uh, he asked us to help with his tax returns. So we helped Dennis with uh, bring all his tax returns up to date and and he also wanted to um, get some money out of his superannuation fund. So we, we filled in all the forms for him and allowed him to access some money so he could purchase a car and he also could have some money to, to start his life basically um, in being able to get a rental property rather than just going back into the same old habits some of them do when they leave prison because they don't have any financial means once they're released. So you helped Dennis lodge multiple tax returns and that produced, I think, a tax refund of about $4,300. Yeah, so Dennis received a refund. We've helped a number of taxpayers and we've actually probably at this point in time helped um, link taxpayers up with their refunds to the value of about $800,000. So that's a lot of money that taxpayers who are incarcerated didn't have prior to us coming on board with this program. So we look at it from a point of view and a number of clients often say like, you know, now I've got money that I can restart when I get out because it's in my bank account. Others sort of still have families and children and they're sort of saying, well, that money can go to my partner to help while I'm in here. Um, Those that are, are, you know, having their refunds allocated to child support are also quite happy with that because they're saying, well, it's going to my kids. So, you know, the amount of refunds that have been generated from this program and at this stage we've only done 10% of of West Australian prison population. So you can just imagine how much more money might be sitting out there. Really interesting. Now, you mentioned that um, that $4,300 kickstart helps Dennis get a rental property and maybe avoid going back, I don't know, what, sleeping on a couch at a friend's house where he might have been back with the social circle, which was problematic or led to, to crime. Are they the kinds of things that this kind of resource can help stop? Yes, definitely. And what you've mentioned there is exactly right. I mean, if you come out of prison and you don't have financial means um, to get yourself, you know, a place of your own or, you know, even the ability to, to go to 
a hotel for a couple of weeks to get yourself started back on track, you often end up sometimes going back to the places that got you in trouble in the beginning. So sleeping on your friend's couch that also might have, you know, drugs revolving in within that house and you could have been in prison for drug offences. So it's actually giving people the ability to to have a fresh start. Um, and that's what a lot of prisoners have said to us. It's actually great. I've got some money to actually make the right decision when I get released. Um, so that's what we're, we're working on in trying to, you know, make sure that they don't end up back in the, the prisons because we've given them a chance. And, and presumably often people are so, um, people sometimes come out of prison and they go directly onto the street. So so they can't actually afford, you know, sometimes they turn to crime just to be able to eat, quite literally. Yeah, no, that's right. And there's a number of other organisations that do help incarcerated prisoners um, with rehousing, um, jobs and stuff. And they're actually reaching out to us as well. So they're sort of saying, look, before this prisoner is released, can you do a, a tax check on them? Because we, you know, if they've got any money, it would really help. So a lot of other organisations do call on our services as well to help the incarcerated. Because not only do we do the taxes, we actually do also help them with their super. So we help them consolidate super if they've got a number of funds so that the most amount of money possible is available for them. And we help them look for lost super. I mean, the government the other day or tax office said there was something like 20-odd billion dollars worth of unclaimed superannuation. So we're trying to find super for, for prisoners as well that might be floating around in no man's land. Presumably a lot of prisoners have, you know, uh, accrued debts or maybe um, fines or, or penalties. Do you help prisoners with those issues? Yes, we do. So often when we, we take on a prisoner, we will uh, have a look at the ATO information. Um, I'm a registered tax agent, so we run the, the clinic like we would run a normal tax practice, so I can access everything online through the tax portals. We might see that there's penalties for failing to lodge or debts outstanding. What also often happens is when we lodge a prisoner's return, so for example, we might have a taxpayer who might have 10 years worth of tax returns outstanding. So um, we, we do work with taxpayers to resolve both their debts and their penalty that have been imposed on them. And we are quite successful with the penalties. With the hardship applications for debt, we a bit, bit hit and miss in regards to how the tax office view the application, but it's an area that we, we want to work more with the tax office on, in particular for incarcerated persons. Is child support an issue when you haven't put in y your tax returns for, for a number of years? Yeah, so we've had a number of clients who have child support debts. And one of the main problems that occurs is that for example, we had one guy who was a, a FIFO worker who, you know, was on a salary of probably $180,000 and, you know, was paying his child support was assessed on that $180,000. He was incarcerated, um, you know, partway through a financial year, so still had a large amount of um, income for that year. So let's say, for example, he lodged his 2019 tax return. He was uh, earning $180,000. In 2020, he ends up in, in jail. 
He hasn't had the ability to advise the tax office or lodge that 2020 tax return or advise the tax office that he's incarcerated. So they're still working on the fact that he earns $180,000. The child support agency is working at his his, uh, assessment is based on 180. So right up to we get into visit him in 2022, he's occurred, you know, nearly three plus years of child support on an assessment income that he doesn't have. Now, it is very difficult to get child support um, agency to go back and reverse those assessments that have been raised. We recently had a gentleman with us who had a a large child support debt in excess of over $100,000 because he hadn't lodged returns for a number of years, but prior to that had a successful business. Now, he, he didn't you know, sort of have an issue with like, oh, I don't want to pay child support. It was more about, well, I can't pay that hundred or thousand dollar debt. I need to effectively, you know, lodge all these returns, advise the tax office that, you know, this is my actual debt and they can do the child support. Because in his case as well, even though he had been incarcerated, he actually had a, a departure prohibitation order put on him from the tax office so he could never leave Australia when he was released from prison because of the child support debts. So we were actually able to work with the client, get all those tax returns lodged and up to date, and he was able to then go and negotiate with the child support agency and his debt actually was reduced to 20000 We also could then apply for the departure order to be taken off him and he called us the other week just to say, look, you know, thank you very, very much for what you did. I really was at the end of my tether and really didn't know whether I wanted to keep going. But, you know, you've done a great job and now I'm on a plane to go visit my family and see my grandkids for the first time. (laughs) So, you know, the ability to do that for somebody is is very important for us in the clinic to help somebody in that circumstance. I guess we have a view of of most people in prison being sort of um, leaving fairly chaotic lives and and not being sort of, you know, part of the economy. But you're talking there about a few people there who sound like that they prior to going to jail, had businesses or or high-paying jobs. Tell me about people who actually have businesses. I mean, you have to even provide them tax business advice, some of them. Tell me about some of those people. So we had a guy the other day who had, I think he had 20 trucks and stuff. Um, He was running and hiring out as well as a lot of other assets that he had had. But, you know, since coming to, to jail a number of years ago, Nobody has helped him with that, but he's got, I think, about six years worth of outstanding returns, but their companies and their trusts and stuff. So we still have to help those type of taxpayers as well. What we've found with the prisoners is they're just so grateful for the assistance they receive and and we help them on the basis that we understand they're in there for for reasons. It's not our purpose to understand what they did to be in there. It's our purpose is just to help them with an area that they struggle to comply with in regards to tax. And in terms of avoiding future offending, what role do you think you play there? In regards to future offending, I mean, a person's decision to offend is they're going to be their own decision. But I think the ability for us to have assisted them 
And in most cases, giving them a little nest egg that is available to them when they come out to make the right decisions. And I think by lodging your tax returns and if you are due a refund, you know, that's giving you some money basically. Annette Morgan, founder and director of the Curtin Tax Clinic, who has pioneered uh, work of going into prisons, now 12 WA prisons. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you very much. That's The Law Report for this week. And on whatever podcast platform you found the program, please do leave us a review. It helps others find us. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer AJ Bradford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.